Um, so when we were putting the program together, um, we realised that there was there's a lot of material we could be covering in this in these next two and a half days. Not least, I think Elise has already pointed out, there's a vast corpus of poetry that is non-British, French, Italian, German, etc. Um, and we just really don't have time to cover it. So what it fell to me was just to do some very short talks, um, really to try and give you an indication of things that you might want to go and look at elsewhere. Maybe it might be sort of like some baseline information for some of you. Um, so I'll be doing a series of those 10, 15-minute talks, if nothing else, but I can't really go into the subject matter anywhere near as deeply as the other speakers. But in this particular one, I just wanted to start by just talking about something which you will encounter again and again uh, when you are um, dealing with the war poets, namely what's rough, roughly termed Georgian poetry. And I think it, it, it marries nicely with Elisa's talk about the early forms of poetry. Um, if you study literature, if you work with literature, you will come across a tendency for literary scholars to try to group things into movements. Um, a movement defined here from the OED as a course or series of actions and endeavours on the part of a group of people working towards a shared goal, an organisation, coalition or alliance of people working to advance a shared political, social or artistic objective, frequently with a modifying word. Um, and tomorrow, indeed, I think Guy picks up on some of the social movements and political movements, which particularly around the Edwardian period, which we, you, you need to have a sort of general knowledge of as it starts to indicate um, what comes later. Um, there is a joke around in literary studies that uh, there are three reasons why literary scholars like movement. First of all, it allows them to make order out of chaos uh, so that they can reduce everything to a set of bullet points. Secondly, they can then write a book on it. Uh, on the particular movement, and then thirdly, they can write a book saying there's no such movement. But <laughs> the one that you do come across in this field, as, as, as I already mentioned, is Georgian poetry. And we've already seen this picture um, of Edward Marsh, um, and there is the cover, and here is uh, an edition of Georgian poetry. What do we mean? Well, if we were to sort of try and define this, the, the definition which I suppose people can't dispute is that we are talking about a collection of poets... Uh, that appeared in an anthology called Georgian Poetry, which came out, as you can see, in various years, 1912, 1915, 1917, 1919, which I have here, and 1922. Um, edited by Edward Marshall, we've heard quite a bit about, supported by Howard Munro, launched by Brooke, Wilfred Gibson, John Drinkwater, in the same year that Munro also launched the Poetry Review. And I think... I just want to show you something over on the other laptop here, um, because I think this is important. When you saw um, Elisa's uh, slide, when you saw that, that literati, the, the wealth of people that were sort of circulating around in this sphere, it is worth knowing that there was a core set of people who supported each other, and yet there were people on the periphery. Now, this may look horrendous, and indeed it is, but I'll just explain what, it, what briefly it is. It's... Um, it's something which you can download and you can add to. So it's, you, know, you, you can develop this as much as you want. But what you're seeing here is, is what people call a mind map, where you try to associate people or ideas with each other. And this was one we did a, a bit of time ago, where it's trying to pick up some of the major characters, the major journals, and particularly the major poets, and show the relationship between them. And what you can see, if we begin to look down on the right-hand side here, is just how much... Um, the Georgian poetry, Edward Marsh, and I believe that's Monroe, you can see that they were quite heavily linked on the right-hand side with various other people. 
And that is important. When you do something like this, you may disagree and you don't like the sort of look of it, but when you start visualising this, you can see which poets were at the centre of these movements and which poets weren't. But there is no doubt that Georgian poetry, however we discuss it, was extremely important. So just to show you the table of contents, um, these are the poets that, were, that appeared in the 1912 to 1922 series of editions. Um, some of them are names you are familiar with, no doubt, and I've tried to sort of reduce, increase them in size, uh, such as Brooke, Gibson, uh, Ledwidge, Gibson, etc., Sassoon, Rosenberg, and Nichols, and so on, and Edmund Blunden down there. But I suppose the question this immediately throws out to you, and it picks up on Mark's talk, is should we consider everyone publishing in this from the 1915 edition on a war poet? Uh, in the preface, for example, to the 1919 edition, um, Marsh writes that he hopes that that which we call, for want of a better word, peace, has not interfered with the writing of good poetry, as if somehow the German surrender in 1918 was a bit of a pain for the, for the poetry of that period. But it really does throw into question what are we talking about here in, in meaning war poetry or poetry influenced by the war or poetry just written during the war or after the war reflecting back on it. But also I suggest it would be very hard to say that you could find a binding idea or style between many of these poets. So when we use this term Georgian poetry, and it is used frequently, you must remember that you have a, a range of poets here who are writing in all kinds of different means and about different things. To give you but one example, a poet you're probably maybe not familiar with, Thomas Malty, who's a journalist who went on to uh, actually sponsor sort of poetry during the 20s and 30s, although it was I think it was noted as remarkably uncontroversial, was what he did. Um, he has a poem in here called Lover's Lane. This cool quiet of trees in the grey dusk of the north, in the green half-dusk of the west, where fires still glow, these glimmering fantasies of foliage branching forth and drooping into rest. Ye lovers know that in your wanderings beneath this arching break, ye must attune your love to hushed words. And then about 20 pages later, we have this poem... Does it matter? Does it matter losing your legs? For people will always be kind and you need not show that you mind when the others come in after hunting to gobble their muffins and eggs, seek free Sassoons. To try and attempt to form some form of comparison there between those two poems I think is nigh on impossible and therefore illustrates that one of the things we have to bring to your mind when you're hearing this term Georgian poetry is that it really isn't a movement as such. Where I think we can get something from Georgian poetry, and I think this fits in nicely with what was happening, and I think very much with what Elisa was saying there, um, was that there certainly was a feeling around the time leading up to the war that there was a, a sense of renewal was needed, something needed to be done. Um, Edward, in the preface to the 1911-12 uh, anthology, he writes, English poetry is now once again putting on a new strength and beauty, and this word new comes across again and again, and youth in particular. So the so-called Georgian movement, and I don't think, as I said, I, I use that term loosely, um, really is there to try and challenge what was there before, the Victorian, pseudo-Edwardian rhetoric, vagueness with, 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 uh, and, and uh, sort of complicated language to make things simplistic, realistic, Occasionally violent, but really honing in on a new way of writing poetry. They wanted to deal with plain facts of human psychology 
And like other movements, which we will come on to in a second, they hated verbosity, wanted to return to sort of simple poetic fiction. So if you read the poems, you may sort of begin to see those coming through. They do come across as optimistic um, and buoyant, and I'll come on to that in a second. But then again, I've just read Sassoon's poem, Does It Matter?, which perhaps uh, suggests that is not the case. However, they warned the only things that were there. Um, and again, I suspect Guy might pick up with this, but if, if not, just, this is something you need to take away. The, the lead-up to the war, the decades before the war, was a real cups, a cusp, a sense of passage between old and new, as, as, as Sherry says in the Cambridge Companion to First World War literature. When people were coming up with all kinds of ideas and challenging old ways, uh, one of them, which you, um, is probably one that's been much heralded, um, although perhaps not as well read as, as you might think, because some of the things it says was quite uh, extraordinary, was the Futurist Movement, founded by Filippo Marinetti, um, the manifesto of which was published uh, on the front page of Le Figaro in 1909. Uh, and note here how, whilst it is embodying that sort of new spirit of celebrating the new technology, the, the turn of the new century, etc., it also comes across quite extraordinary. We intend to glorify war, the only hygiene giver of the world, perhaps picking up on, on Mark's question. Militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of emancipators, beautiful ideas worth dying for, and contempt for women. And if you want to read the, uh, the complete manifesto, it's available in uh, Rainey's Modernism Anthology. Um, again, there is this sense of trying to renew, trying to challenge the old, which you could perhaps put alongside the Georgians. Uh, but certainly, I don't think those sentiments there are ones that we would uh, welcome in the future, which is quite interesting. Now, there is a tendency, and um, I think, uh, as uh, Elisa said, we've, we've seen the fact that there was uh, French poets like Apollinaire, um, which we would, we would look to, Trackle, um, writing uh, in Austria, I think, isn't it? Austrian, yes. Um, and there's this sense that, oh, well, that was, that was the kind of modernist. The, you know, the, the English poets really had none, no truck with that foreign nonsense until much later on. But this is, again, of course, not true. There were emerging movements where people were uh, embracing these ideas as well and experimenting with them. Um, Imagists is uh, particularly uh, worthwhile looking at. This is from the uh, manifesto, I suppose, of Imagines by Flint, um, a body which sort of brought in poets like Aldington, Flint and Ezra Pound, etc. And you can see here some things, again, which you might pick up from Marsh's preface or the ideas which we associate with the Georgian poets. Directness, a direct treatment of thing. Um, no, use no word that does not contribute to the presentation. Again, a simplification down, a boiling down, getting into things uh, which um, make, it, make poetry... Uh, more direct, more popular in, in a sense. And I would just, as a footnote, it's not on the reading list. If it's not gone, there's a very good series on Radio 4 that's been running the War and Culture, and there's a, a good uh, episode on the images as well. And to this we would add uh, the Vorticists, uh, founded by Wyndham Lewis. I believe I have a picture of him there. Uh, again, really, it says it all there, blasting away the years 1837 to 1900 to sweep out the past century, celebrate the modern age and mechanical inventiveness uh, and others. And again, people float around in the same circles. This was also uh, associated with Aldington and Pound. So it is not surprising then if we come across a poem like Trenches St. Eloy by T.E. Hume, 
Um, we should not think that this is somehow extraordinary. This is emerging from that imagist movement there. Um, and as you can see, it perhaps is not the type of poetry you might associate with the early part of the war. Um, but it is certainly there. Um, and then it perhaps prongs a nice um, preamble to when we look at poets like Isaac Rosenberg. Just to finish, um, another thing which uh, comes out and is often said about the Georgians is that they were somehow naive, that they were happily trotting along talking about nice uh, pastoral elements in their poetry and then suddenly everything came crashing down in August 1914. Um, and this really ties into this, this myth, which I think is being challenged continually now, thankfully, that everything was rosy in the garden prior to uh, the outbreak of the war. Uh, for those of you who remember the Richard Attenborough's film, Oh, What a Lovely War, uh, there's the very famous scene where the band is marching along the front and everyone is skipping around happily, joyously, almost like the Pied Piper, and then it wheels around onto Brighton Pier, which is bedecked with the lights of World War I, this naive sense that people sleep, sleptwalked into the war. This, thankfully, mercifully, is being challenged continuously. Um, and I think... There is this suggestion that the Georgians how somehow were complicit in this and that when they get into the war, or they start, then they have to abandon everything. But that simply is not true. Think again back to those table of contents and what I read to you from 1919. Um, it does tie in, though, and I think this is something which will come up again and again, that there was this feeling in leading up to the war in the 1910s and so on that things had gone slightly wrong. That, the, that Britain had gorged itself on empire and was looking for a way of cleansing itself, which perhaps explains some lines in Brooks' poetry. Uh, Edmund Goss, in his 1914 essay, War and Literature, states, Our late past years of luxury and peace have been founded on a misconception, the misconception being that all was well with the empire. The nation was, in fact, in danger, now fully industrialised. It had lost its moral backbone. The rural idyll had been destroyed and there was a growing underclass most importantly, it had become complacent. Perhaps then war would purify England. Uh, so an image uh, from Cambridge University also agreed there's little doubt we need a cleansing purge. And what I've put up here, and I hopefully this might again segue into, I think Guy picks this up tomorrow, is the uh, postscript to um, Masterman, Charles Masterman. Now he's a character which you will come across, and I'll say a bit more about him after lunch because he is important. Um, who was a politician but also uh, a, a writer of some note who was very much interested in what was happening in Britain um, and his famous uh, book, The Condition of England, um, which I believe this is the postscript to, I think points out not only the fact that there is this element of a need to cleanse but also that people really want weren't aware of what was to come. So whilst we might single out the Georgians, whilst we know that in the 1910s and uh, leading up to the war, things were not rosy in the garden with the uh, potential civil war in Ireland, the suffragette movement and so on, that everyone was aware that modern life wasn't as wonderful as they thought, they still were awaiting um, well, with a sense of uh, ignorance of what was to come. If we look in the middle of there, I just single out the, uh, the lines from Masterman. We know little of the forces fermenting in that strange laboratory, which is the birthplace of the coming time. We are uncertain whether civilization is about to blossom into bower or whether tangle of dead leaves and faded gold. 
uh, a scene very reminiscent actually in um, Tressel's The Ragged Trouser Philanthropist. Right at the end, they're looking out the window and they think, what is to come? What is about to hit us? So I think what I wanted to bring together there really is just a few thoughts that um, the pre-war, which leads on to the early war poets, was a very complicated place. There were all kinds of things bubbling around uh, socially, politically and literary. Um, whilst people talk at length about the idea that there is a Georgian poetry movement, I think that is perhaps uh, simplifying it to the point really of not much use, um, but also that throughout sort of Europe as well, those, lead those years leading up to the war were not as rosy as everyone thought, and people were really beginning to struggle with their place in the world. I'm going to give you a follow-up exercise, and that really is to try and get hold of a copy of Georgian poetry. It's online. You can actually get them from, uh, I think, Project Gutenberg. Not very well formatted, but the key thing there is to read the preface. Read the prefaces of the, of the editions, and then maybe have a look at some of the poems and just see just how broad corpus this was. Thank you.